Hey everyone, I'm your host Patrick, and welcome back to another episode of Not Adding Up. This episode, I have a new co-host, and as always, I will let them introduce themselves. Hi guys, my name's Abby. Um, I've been a good friend of Patrick's for a while now. Today's case is the Oakland County Child Killer. And I just want to give a quick shout out to my sister for this suggestion, but this shout out is also like a screw you because this case is absolutely sickening, but I had no clue about it before my sister pointed it out to me and I'm kind of surprised that it doesn't have more attention and it's not up there with the more notorious serial killer cases like Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, etc. Right. Um, so I just wanted to start before I even get into anything about this case with the first of many trigger warnings that are going to come along with this case. So this case involves uh, child molestation, child pornography, and child murder. Um, I will revisit trigger warnings when we get into the more brutal parts of the cases, but that is just an overall topic warning for this case. Also, I apologize in advance because this case is going to be a little hard to follow, Um, but I think it's important to bring attention to this case and all of the elements surrounding it because it's not really talked about and... In my eyes, it's extremely important, and the fact that all of this happened is really sickening and needs to have more attention put on it so we can understand that these things do happen and they can still continue to happen, and we need to be aware of that. So it's very similar to like Jeffrey Epstein and the fact that it's a good example of how like people in power and with positions and with money can shield other people from prosecution and committing even the most disgusting and heinous crimes. Oh, yeah. While these sound like horror stories, and we would like to think this didn't happen in our own country, these take place in Oakley County, Michigan, a long-time affluent part of the state. GNC was based out of the area in the 70s, and that business was booming. Oakland County was home to some of the richest individuals in the automobile production business in the entire country, if not the world. The name suggests that the case takes place in the county but the coverage of this case is going to take us all across the state of Michigan and even all over the country. So just to give an outline and a warning that this is going to be part one of many. Um, I, I'm guessing three but I don't know. It's very it's a lot to cover and I definitely want to break it up because it's so heavy. If I were to do all of it in one episode it would be like two and a half hours and you would just not feel the same afterwards. But in this part, I'm going to be talking about the murders that are connected with this case and a few that are not directly connected. So some of these murders were later deemed unrelated to the Oakland County child killer. However, I feel that this case, what this case uncovered, that they do have a slight connection. And even if it's not the same perpetrator, I think that they definitely can be connected if you talk about the overall themes of the crime and what was going on in the country. A month before the first victim of the Oakland County child killer was taken, there was a cluster of child murders in the area that would eventually be deemed unconnected. Cynthia Cadu was a 
16-year-old high school student, and she left a friend's house at 8.30 p.m. on January 15, 1976. Trigger warning, we're going to get into some murder description. Five hours later, a motorist found her body 15 miles from her home in Oakland County. She had been sexually assaulted and her skull was crushed in with a blunt instrument. Oh, wow. That's definitely a... That's scary. And it's, it's a, like, that's a very violent and personal yeah, way to kill somebody. definitely. Yeah. Cynthia was described as being a tall, pretty young girl with long brunette hair and blue eyes. Her parents believed that she was staying the night at her friend's house. So when she didn't return home that evening, they were not concerned. But the next day, when she didn't get home from school, they made a report around 6.30 p.m. with the police. So yeah. It's always that typical teenager, like... They think they're at their best friend's house, but, you know, that is a very big pattern. I see it in a lot of crime stories, you know? And we're definitely going to get back. Like, that's going to come up again with the police kind of saying that, but not the parents. But this time, the parents just genuinely believe that she had arrangements to stay at her friend's house. But the next day, when she didn't report, come home from school, she was reported missing to the police. And at 11 p.m., the couple found out on the 11 p.m. news that a girl's body was found Mm. on a nearby road. And they knew instantly that it was Cynthia's. Mm. Cynthia's family would be the first of many in this case to learn of their child's demise through the news and not through a more humane way. Cynthia's case, is, like I said, isn't connected directly to the Oakland County child killer so I didn't have as much on her, but it does say that she will be missed dearly by her multiple siblings. And I found that on a newspaper quote that it said she just loved life. And mm. any 16-year-old just being murdered that way is just That's devastating. She had so much sad. ahead of her. Yeah. Yes. Just four days later, on January 19th, in the same community as Cynthia, Birmingham, Michigan, Oh, wow. There was a string of armed robberies that ended in a home where Sheila Schrock was babysitting. Hmm. Sheila was a freshman in an all-girls Catholic high school, and she lived with her older brother because their parents recently died of cancer. Which is just like the first hit of many in this case. She was an amazing student, and she loved going to school and making new friends, and she had great grades, which is a reoccurring theme with these victims, obviously. Yes. Whoever picked them out isn't going to know this, but it's just a shame that a lot of these kids were just amazing students and had so many friends. They have such futures ahead of them. Mm -hmm. Cared about school so much. Sheila also played the piano. Going to give another trigger warning, we're going to get into another murder description. This one's a little more brutal. So when this robber who was committing the string of armed robberies got into the house Sheila was babysitting, instead of tying her up like he had his previous victims... The man raped her and shot her five times in the stomach and left her slumped over on top of a giant Snoopy stuffed animal to die. Oh my gosh. I know, like reading that, I was literally, my heart was just stabbed, like the innocent She was just babysitting? She was a 14 year old and she was babysitting for for this family. People are sick. And she, it's just like she was living with her brother because her parents had just passed. And And this was close to the other girl, Cynthia? Correct. Okay. Wow. In the same uh, in community, the, Birmingham. And was this in the same t- time period? Like, Yes. Then? So Sheila's murder was January 19th, and Cynthia's was January 15th. Oh, so wow. So he, it was really close. Fast forward to March 15th, 
1976, and we're going to talk about the first victim of the Oakland County child killer. On that Thursday, February 15th, 12-year-old Mark Stebbins left a recreation hall where his mother worked to walk home so he could watch a movie on TV. He left around 1.15 for the quarter-mile walk home, but when his mother, Ruth Stebbins, would return home from work that night, Mark was nowhere in sight. She reported him missing to the police, to which she was informed that she would have to wait 24 hours before filing an official report. For a fucking 12-year-old boy, she she was told that she would have to wait to file a report. That's crazy. Mark was described as a sweet and shy 7th grader. He said that he enjoyed fishing and he had hopes of one day joining the Marines. Mm. Trigger warning. Four days after Mark vanished, around 11 a.m., his body was found in a strip mall parking lot. No. Mark's cause of death was deemed suffocation. He was found to be sodomized, although no evidence of semen was found in his body. That was the initial report, but in no reports later on was that he was sodomized, which is an oh. odd inconsistency. Yeah. That's... And it comes up more than once in this case. That's weird. <laughs> it's it's definitely weird and it's this already sounds so crazy like there's gonna be so many plot twists i bet <laughs> police determined that he was killed not long before being placed in the parking lot another individual says he was walking his dog in the area around nine thirty, and he was sure that his dog would have picked up the scent so when i say another individual i mean not the individual that found his body so after this horrible murder of mark stebbins there is no conviction. Horrible murder of Mark Stebbins, Cynthia Cadu, and Sheila Sherrock. All three of them, there is no convictions, and months are going by. Wow. So the community of Oakland County, Michigan, is living in terror at this point. Nobody is walking home from school anymore. Parents are picking up their children. There is traffic uh, that is they didn't used to be there because kids would walk home. It's yeah. just the entire county is adjusting life to these awful awful crimes Just altering it yeah and it's of note that birmingham is not a violent community it is a very uh affluent community oakland county in general is an affluent community mm-hmm. but birmingham is birmingham is one of the richest i see so in the months that pass after mark stevens is murdered there are no new victims until december of that year so from february to december the entire area is just living in fear and wondering if he's gone, if yeah. he is going to strike again, what's happening. I shouldn't say he, we don't know at this right. point. On December 22nd, 1976, 12-year-old Jill Robinson was upset about something. She wouldn't tell her mother or her sister what was wrong and was getting into arguments with her mother. I read something about how it's kind of like a cute little argument between her mom and her. She was asking her to help with dinner and she said, her mother reported, she was like, I just asked her to make the biscuits. And uh. it just caused this huge thing. And she always loves making biscuits. Uh. And I was so, <laughs> it was just so shocking to me. Yeah. So she didn't want to make the biscuits. She wasn't telling her mom what was wrong. Mm. So something's up. So something's yeah. up. So her mom had talked to her boy, uh, boyfriend at the time, who yeah. was a police officer. Uh. Not really important at this point, but... He said that maybe telling her to step outside for a minute to just, like, decompress and, like, cool down would help the situation. So she was like, okay, like, this isn't something I would normally do, but I don't know what to do at this point. I'm not getting through to my daughter. 
So she suggested this. She said, Jill, honey, why don't you maybe step outside for a minute and just try to calm down and maybe you can, you'll feel better and talk, when I talk first when you come back in. Yeah. This is something that would haunt her mother, Carol Robinson, for the rest of her life. Jill's parents, Carol and Tom, had recently got a divorce. Jill was described as both her mother and sister as being stubborn, but not in a bad way. She was strong-headed and very mature for her age, very smart for her age. Something that is of note and very odd about Jill is that she was, she had a strong preconceived notion that she would be murdered. Oh, wow. Which troubled her mother, as it would any mother. Yeah. So she got her a psychologist, and she said as that... As one should. <laughs> the psychologist determined that nothing was wrong with Jill to be causing her these feelings, and she suggested that they got a cat, which they did. And I'm like, okay, of course, yes, get a cat. Yes, she will help. That would be nice. Jill was looking forward to Christmas. She had even saved up her allowance to buy all of her siblings' gifts. Mm, I love Christmas. And this is happening right before Christmas. She's a 12-year-old and she saved up her allowance to buy her siblings. (laughs) 12-year-old. So after a while, after she had told Jill to cool off, Carol went back outside to find her. And she couldn't. So she ran to the neighbors and asked if she was over there. And she wasn't. So she asked if they would watch her kids while she went around looking. So by 11.30 at night, after she's been looking the entire time and hasn't found her, she filed a police report. And the police responded that she was probably just a runaway, which Carol was adamant. She said, no, my daughter would not do this. She would not run away and not tell me. This is not what happened. That just angers me when they just automatically assume that. And the fact that she had told them that they had been arguing and she told her to step outside for a moment. Yeah, there was obviously red flags there. So, but, and that's, I think that's what the police were kind of using to be like, well, you just had this argument. She's just running away. True, true. Being a typical preteen. So she followed up the next day and they actually took her more seriously this time. The police began searching for Joe and asking anybody if they had seen her and they find an individual who said they spotted her heading north for Birmingham presumably to where her father was living mm. fast forward three days to Christmas and the headlines of the newspaper in the area that day were police looking for missing girl mm. so that's just something like a very humbling thing on Christmas in the day. community yeah mm-hmm. that's another trigger warning Joe's body was found the next day within sight of the police department on the side of the road near Royal Oaks, Michigan. Joe had been shot point blank in the face with a 12-gauge shotgun. Oh my gosh. She showed no signs of sexual abuse, which was an odd inconsistency with the first murder. The patterns, yeah. But I will offer my own theory about this in part two. Another weird inconsistency is that the media reports that she was wearing a used tampon, Mm. but her mother said she hadn't started her periods yet. And, like, this is just me, like, throwing a little speculation in there. I'm like, maybe that could have been why she was so upset and didn't want to talk to her mom. Like, maybe she had just started her period for the first time. I don't know, like, could she have gotten the tampon from, like, school or something? It's like... That's a good speculation. Um, As a girl... There's times when you go to school and that happens to you and you go to the nurse and they give you one and 
I mean, that could have happened, you, you know, it you might have been moody and argumentative. Um, that's normal, but, um, that's, that's a very good speculation you had. I wonder if it would be re- like required for the nurse to call home them and re- report that, Hey, Joe came in and sh- this is happening. I'm not sure. Yeah. I feel like that would, since she's a minor and like, right. that's like a medical, not a like medical a, emergency. Well, it's like a thing you want to talk about. Exactly. With that's a big daughter thing. or mm-hmm. like, you know, if you, and care. If, it, yes. <laughs> if you care. Exactly. So but, that's just a little yeah. side note. Her body was also said to be exceptionally clean. So with Joe's murder, this makes five child murders linked to the area of Michigan alone. I say five because there is one that I have not spoken about because it was largely linked to an Ohio biker gang. So I just didn't really include it in this case because I thought we had enough uh, awful things to talk about. Right. So now after the 10-month hiatus of this murder, this uh child killer and now he's back the fear and the parents of the area and the children of the area was even more intensified it was just i can't imagine i can't imagine living in a community i know and you think you're safe and you're not (laughs) and it's like do you like especially like these families like they are so probably like we moved out of the like bad parts of michigan to get away from all this blah 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 there's a lot of bad parts of michigan and um there the, it's anywhere this can happen to anywhere Anybody. anyone any small town any place yes you're right another thing to think about with this uh the murder of joe robinson is the fact that it took place right around christmas and like that just like she had bought her siblings presents and everybody like they left that they mentioned so that they were under the tree unopened waiting for her and it's just like the whole community has to feel that grief that that family like that holiday was not such a loss yes sadly both holidays this season would be tainted with murder on january 2nd 1977 christine mihalik 12 years old was walking to 7-eleven with money that she had asked for to buy a magazine she wanted to buy the magazine in a candy bar which is confirmed by the 7-eleven clerk who checked her out however she would not get home that afternoon Her family immediately put on a massive search, going door-to-door for funding and asking for volunteers. They managed to put on a 70-person search in 10-degree temperatures, looking for their daughter. Her stepdad drove every night looking for her with a pistol ready to deal with the kidnapper in any way he saw fit. Oh, yeah. They they love their baby. (laughs) You can tell. they, Mm -hmm. They were... An important connection with this case would be Christine's grandfather was friends with Lee Williams, grandfather of Corey Williams, who is an instrumental part of the investigation of this case. Corey will come up in part two, but we... So we won't really talk about him in this part, but just note that Christine has a connection to Corey Williams. Okay. Trigger warning... Like once again. On January 21st, at 11.45 a.m., a mailman stumbled upon something. He thought it was a blanket, but upon further investigation, he discovered Christine, and the blue thing he saw was her coat. Christine's cause of death was deemed asphyxia by smothering. She had minimal bruising and no gross evidence of sexual assault was found on the body. But yet Mm -hmm. another inconsistency 
There was sperm found in her rectum and her vagina. The medical examiner could not account for how they got there, which is just, I don't know. I have no clue if that's common in yeah. sexual assault cases mm. or like murder cases, but what the fuck? Right. That, that sounds totally off. Uh, like, how are you not like, going to say that she was sexually assaulted if that was found? And, right. Like, literally in her, inside 12. of her. In... So, you may have noticed that this period between her body being found and her going missing January 2nd and January 21st, this is a lot longer yeah. than most of the other children going back. So do you, where was she found compared to the 7-Eleven? She, compared to the 7-Eleven, I'm not positive, mm-hmm. but she was found in a very, um, a very public area. Oh, wow. Yeah. All of these bodies were found Like the in, one was next to the police station. One was next to a yeah. police station. One was in a strip mall. This guy is bold. Or whoever it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like. Well, I guess we can't say it's a guy because they were even Yeah, we don't even point. know. So, we can't. Oh, no. we yeah. can. Yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> with Mark, he was missing for a total of four days. With Jill, she was missing for a total of four days as well. Mm. So Christine was missing for 19 days. Yeah, that's much a much larger gap. Yeah. Her mother said of the fact that she was the longest missing child that they must have just enjoyed her company so much because she was such a sweet kid. It just breaks your heart. The police department also concluded that she had dressed herself after being naked for a period of time. Her par- her mother disagrees with this, citing the way she tucked in her pants to her boots was not the way she would have gotten dressed and that her blouse was not matching how she would typically put it on. Like, I guess maybe the button. I mean, after she, when she, before she was murdered? The, the police were saying that she had dressed herself after being naked her mother said, no, somebody else dressed her after she was naked. That's true, but also, if you're a scared little girl, I don't think you're going to care about the... You're going to tuck in your pants. Well, I don't like, know, but I think it's more uh, so, like, she. it's something she went out of her way to do, and, like, that she would have gone out of her way to do if she dressed herself, but her mom was like, she would have never gone out of her yeah. way to do that. That's something that... Like, I feel like that might be, like, an extra step that, like, a little child wouldn't mm-hmm. have taken. That is a good point. Something that I didn't really touch on is the fact that all of these murders, when the bodies were found, they were concluded to be murdered uh, within an hour of when they were discovered. And I've already talked about how they were clean. When the bodies were discovered? When the bodies were discovered. An hour. So these bodies were clean and they were kept alive for the entire time that they were missing. Wild. So you just can like you never want to imagine, but you have to imagine being the parents of these babies that like what's going on in that time period. Like it's it's documented in all the cases that they were fed, they were cleaned. In some cases, they were like extremely cleaned. Like so, they kidnapped them and held them hostage until they killed them. Or yes, okay, that's even scarier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, They were alive the entire time. So they just got tortured and, wow, that's crazy. So after Christine's murder, the Oakland County Police Department was finally accepting that there was a very potential serial killer on the loose. 
there is a clear pattern between Mark, Joe, and Christine. They had, as we just discussed, they had been held for a period of days before their bodies had been found. They were all younger. They had all been cleaned and well-fed, and they were all placed on highly trafficked roads. How did no one see this? Like, that's my question. Whenever they were like, dumping the is bodies. Is this a bystander effect? Or, like, how did no one question that? How did they not see it? It's I don't think, so public. Like I don't think the murders were taking place in public. No, but how, still get the bodies body, there. Yeah, it's still, like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. In broad daylight. Yes. Detective Robinson was deemed the head of the investigation in the division of the Michigan State Police. And he was dis- uh, described as being savvy as dealing with the media. Robertson was suspected of multiple cover-ups as well, which is something that we'll get into in the uh, coming parts of this series. So under Detective Robinson, there was a task force created in late January, soon after the discovery of Christine's body. The task force would go over 4,000 sex offenders that were checked and rechecked that all lived in the Oakland County area and all were found not to be connected with the case. Mm. In early February of 1977, the police put a news media blackout on the case. So this could be seen as they were just trying to like keep everything away from the killer and try to be as like secretive as they can. Yeah. But it was genuinely suspected that they did this because they just had nothing to go off of and didn't want to look bad to the public. That Sadly, is even... Yeah. And it's even confirmed by a um, former investigator. Oh, okay. So the task force was created a few, about a week after Christine's body was found. A month passes, the entire month of February. Nothing new happens with this case. There's no suspects brought in. No new victims. That is until March of 1977, where we will now discuss the final victim of the Oakland County child killer. On March 16, 1977, Tim left his home in Birmingham with his skateboard and 30 cents that he got from his sister to buy a candy bar at a local pharmacy. I hate how all of these stories are fucking starting off so innocently. Yeah. Like, Christine was going to a 7-Eleven to buy a magazine. Like, Mark was yeah. just walking home to watch a movie. Like, all these are just children. These are just kids doing what kids do. Like, that's exactly what I was about to say. Back in the 70s. Whatever like, kids did in the 70s, that's what they were doing. Like, these And are then you get kidnapped. Like, innocent babies who were just living their lives. What not, the hell? Not yeah. thinking about what... They very, they very much so were thinking about what could happen to them. Because of how prevalent the it was. The one girl, they she should knew never... she was going to get murdered. She had that premonition. That's crazy to me. It is. that It's very crazy. Yeah. But no child should have to have these thoughts in their head. Exactly. Yeah. The pharmacy Tim was going to was less than three blocks from his house. He left his home around 7.45 p.m., which is kind of late. Like, uh, yeah, it's a little, <laughs> it's a little, a little late, bit. especially with everything going on. But yeah. all of the King family was adamant on the fact that Kim, Tim had been uh, taught very well what to do in situations, and he was very aware of stranger danger. Yeah. So he was very, like, he was Cost- mature for his age. Yeah. yeah. They trusted him. 
His older sister, Kathy, was watching him for the evening as his parents were out to dinner and his older brother, Chris, and Mark were babysitting and at a school play, respectively. He had asked for money because he was saving all of his money for a new blue tracksuit that he really wanted. And he was just saving up and being a responsible little boy with his money. And he wanted that damn tracksuit. So you get that shit, Tim. Right. (laughs) Kathy had a show that evening. And Tim, who had been warned extensively about Stranger Danger, as I just said, was allowed to stay home until one of either his older brother or his parents returned. So Kathy left for her show after Tim left for the pharmacy to get his candy. Okay. Everybody else, excluding Kathy, returned to the house around 9 p.m. and mm-hmm. found no trace of Tim. And he left around 7.45. 7.45. So he would, have won- he would have been home by that oh, point. Oh, wow. Yeah, and he lived three blocks away. Mm-hmm. Okay. In an eerie connection, and an eerie, like... Just an eerie fact about this case is the mm-hmm. restaurant that the Kings were eating at with a client that evening was just 500 feet away from where Tim was presumably abducted. Wow. Upon realizing that Tim was missing, Marion, his mother, and Chris, his brother, went looking, and Barry, his father, and Mark, his other father, his other brother, excuse me, stayed home in case he would turn back up. They didn't have any luck in the initial searches. So they returned home. Chris reports going back to the drugstore on foot with a baseball bat later that night because he couldn't sleep and he was just pissed off and terrified. Yeah. And he didn't know what to do with his energy, so he went. When he got to the pharmacy parking lot, he saw three to four cars parked. One of them that stuck out to him was a blue car with a white hockey strip. So the car is called a blue gremlin. Um, it must, they must not make them anymore because I've never heard of I've that. I've never seen yeah. that, yeah. But it was referred to like it was a thing in the 70s, mm-hmm. so maybe some of my order listeners may recognize the name Blue Gremlin. Mm-hmm. But, uh, Chris was fond of the car, so he checked it out. He was like, he liked the car in general, so he just I looked at it. Him. He didn't see anything. He noticed it. Yeah. Just caught his eye. Kathy returned from her show around 2 a.m. and saw all the lights on in her house, to which she assumed she was in trouble. But when she got inside, she realized that she was actually just her parents' last hope that Tim could have been with her. Mm. Almost immediately after Tim was abducted, the King family took place in a press conference about Tim's abduction. And there are some quotes of uh, Tim's father, Barry King, speaking both to his abductor and directly to Tim. The first one I'm going to read is to his abductor. I don't know if you have children or if you want them, but please treat him like you, he was one of your own. Talk to him. He's a talkative kid. I don't know if you have any brothers, but his brothers and sisters said to treat him just like you would a brother. We want him back. Just let him come home. Mm. That gives me like... Yeah, that just chills. gave me goosebumps. Yeah. This next one's not any better. <laughs> I want to say hi to Tim. We love you, and we spoke to Coach today. They had baseball tryouts yesterday. But don't worry, they will have another one when you get home. Stay tough and say your prayers. We're with you, buddy. Not me tearing up. <laughs> like the baseball tryouts. Like, That's really oof. sad. Like he just, they just wanted him to come home and get back to the normal life a fucking 12-year-old should live. 11 years old, excuse me. Tim was 11. I can't even imagine that. So... 
the family was taking on a strong media presence and doing anything they could, and the investigation was on. Tips began pouring in, and a woman said that she had just left the supermarket that evening when she saw a boy in a red jacket matching the description of Tim's jacket standing next to a car next to a man. Hmm. This man had dark skin, long, dark hair, possibly Mediterranean, and was driving a blue AMC Gremlin with a white hockey stripe. Hmm. I wonder where we saw that. The same car Chris saw at the drugstore. Wow. So the investigation is continuing, and a profile of the suspect is given to all postal workers in the state of Michigan, and they were told to report any suspicious activity. And I'm going to read the... Uh, profiles that they were given. Okay. Characteristics that may be associated. Possibly male. Maybe two. Age 25 to 30 years old. Educated. Intelligent. Caucasian. Has capacity to store victim for multiple days without without detection. Possible obsession with cleanliness. Little or no substance abuse involved. Work schedule permits freedom of movement. White collar worker. Unusual sexual habits. Maybe undergoing psychiatric treatment. Lives in or works in Oakland County. Hmm. That's a good amount of information. It's, but that's all speculation at this point. They don't. During the course of this investigation, some twisted asshole tried to get ransom money from the Kings. And he had nothing to do with the case and was just tormenting a, like... There's always that one guy. Family that is just going through hell. Yeah. We don't need that. Marion wrote a letter to the kidnapper of her son, and it's just as heart-wrenching as mm-hmm. his father's statement. She says she keeps expecting Tim to burst in the front door and ask for dinner, to which she says she would go to KFC and get his, his favorite meal. He, she would also let him have Oreos with plain milk, his favorite snack. They would then go on a delayed shopping trip to pick up the blue tracksuit he had been saving up his money for. She also said, it is my hope that Tim is not frightened or hungry and that his cold is not any worse. Like, he had a fucking cold when he got abducted. Like, this is just getting worse and worse. This is crazy. So six days after the abduction of Tim King, two men were making a U-turn. Around 11 p.m. as their headlights passed over a ditch, they spotted something red in the snow, and it was Tim's jacket. A few feet away from his body, skateboard had been tossed, almost as if it were a taunt to the police and the family. The location of Tim's body was outside Oakland County, which police theorized was due to the intensified pressure being put on the area. Marion and Kathy were watching TV that evening for the purpose of distraction, but then a headline came across the bottom of the screen, body of a little boy found along the road in Livonia. This was in spite of requests from police that information would not be released to the media. From the media, excuse me. Police arrived to the King home around 3 a.m. to tell them what they already knew. Final trigger warning for this episode. So Tim's autopsy indicated that he suffered numerous instances of sexual abuse, but no semen was found. His mouth was scraped. He had scratches inside of the mouth and a bite mark on his tongue. 
It is believed that he was smothered with a pillow while he was asleep, as there are no signs of a struggle. And his body was extremely clean, including under the fingernails. Wow. Why does he keep doing that? So It's weird. It, and the smothering, it's like, yeah. not, other than the first, I think it was Cynthia Cadu, that she was smashed, her like face was smashed in. Yeah. They've all been, sm- and uh, Sheila Schrock was shot, but they've all been smothered other than those. These serial killers always have that, um, the way they like to kill mm-hmm. or a pattern they like to do, you know? Yeah. Everybody has, like, all the serial killers have their own MO. Yeah. Tim King was a vibrant, young sixth grader who loved life. He was a good student, and he loved playing baseball and was very good at it. He was also a great hockey player, and he knew everybody in his class, as he was very social and friends with everyone. My family and the world was robbed when this happened is a quote from his father, Barry King. So in this episode, we have gone over the murders of six children, all of which are occurring in a 13-month span and all connected in some way to Oakland County, Michigan. So I hate to cut off the episode without really getting much more into the investigation, but the investigation opens up an entire can of worms that I'm not sure any of us have the stomach to listen to in one episode alongside all of these horrific stories. I also wish that I could say that this is the worst of it, but I would be lying. This case is absolutely horrific in every way, shape, and form. In the next episode of this case, we will be looking at the investigation task force that closed down a little too quickly and how its continued investigation from scarce detectives linked the case to a worldwide child pornography market operating right in Oakland County, Michigan. Oh my. That's going to be wild. It's insane how much more disgusting and horrific this case gets. This case just goes on and on. It really, really does. And I already thought we heard the bad part. (laughs) As far as murder goes, we have gotten through the murders. Yeah. But there is a lot of more information and just details that subjects yeah are gonna come up that are disgusting and just make you sick to your stomach yeah there's no other word but with that being said i hope that you enjoyed the episode as much as you could considering the content of it being so horrific but i hope that my synopsis of these awful crimes was good enough to give you a general picture of where we're going from here and where police and the families and private investigators, what they all have to work on. Just to give it a little bit of a clarity wrap up too. So with these four murders connections that we have so far is the fact that they were all murdered within an hour of being disposed of that was consistent with Timothy King as well. They were all cleaned. They were all sexually assaulted in some reports, although this all is six of these kids. Four of these kids. Four of these, okay. The other two were the ones that we talked about first that were Those murdered in Cynthia different ways. And, yeah. These four the four younger kids were all ages ten 
I mean, 11 and 12. So they were all younger. The uh, Cynthia was 16 and Sheila was 14. So oh, they were okay. a little older. So these kids are younger and the cause of death is suffocation in each one. And they are um, all being dumped along a public roadway or public parking places. Lot. Yes. And then Tim, he was per- he was alongside a very public road. Okay. It wasn't outside of Oakland County. It was oh correct. Yes, it okay. was outside of Oakland County, but it was still alongside a public road yeah, because people we, just driving making people a U-turn. Just drive, yeah, yeah, yeah. Found him. Wow. So those are the connections in the case, and this is where I'm going to leave everybody. Before I ended this episode, I wanted to thank my co-host, Abby, for coming on. So thank you so much for being here, Abby. Of course. I loved it. Thank you guys so much. Thank you all again for listening, and I hope you tune in again for another episode that just does not add up. (laughs) 